Jesus, your arms are held wide out to us. So we run to you. In all of our need, in all of our brokenness, we run to you. And now we are your body on earth. There's a world around us that is every bit as needy and broken and hungry as we are. Equip us by your spirit, by your word, to open our arms wide to this world. Just as you do. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. To become a church known more for its love than for anything else. We believe that that is the invitation and the challenge that God has put in front of us as a church as we've come into this new year. And there are so many ways that that is true of so many who are part of this covenant family. That that is, God leads you out into this world. That is how you live. And people see Jesus in you. But we believe that God wants that to be true of more of us and more true of all of us. That we would be known more for our love than for anything else. That certainly isn't the case for the evangelical church across this nation. The Barna Research Group did a poll two years ago in 2018. And they gave a collection of words, some positive terms like generous and friendly and kind, and some negative words like narrow-minded and, and uptight and judgmental. And people could choose the words that they most associated with evangelicals. It is sad and perhaps not surprising that overwhelmingly the results were that non-Christians' association with evangelicals were negative. And the most common words they chose were narrow-minded, homophobic, misogynistic, and uptight. I believe that what we are talking about this morning is among the most important things that God would have us understand in order for us to become a church that is known more for its love than for anything else. So let me just remind you, we're coming off of a series uh, in 1 John chapter 4, where we have been exploring how the love of God becomes a pattern for the love that we are called to have to others. You may remember that the three basic ideas in that uh, passage we looked at in 1 John chapter 4 are that God loves us, that we are called to love others because God loved us, and we are called to love others as God loved us. A verse that captures this, that we explored. This is a new, uh, the, the N.T. Wright translation. 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice for us. 
that would atone for our sins. Beloved, if that's how God loved us, we ought to love one another in the same way. We are called to love others just as God loved us. To love like Jesus. And John makes this connection explicit earlier in his letter. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in, to abide in Christ, must walk as Jesus did. This is a template. I don't know if you can see that. It's not very helpful that it's clear. But a template is a way of of drawing a shape or a design. When we try to draw a shape freehand, if I were to try to draw a circle, then inevitably my lines are going to be squiggly and they're not going to line up at the end and it's going to look more like an egg or, or a flat pancake than it's going to look like a circle. But a template is a way of drawing a perfect shape every time. And the way we do that is we find a perfect pattern and then we just put our pencil along it and trace along that perfect pattern and out comes a perfect shape. According to John, Jesus is to be the template for the way that we live a life of love. We just pattern our lives after his. We trace our steps along the pattern of the life that he lived and when we do that, When we walk as Jesus walked, then we will be living a life of love. One of my very favorite lines in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is when Mr. Stanfast, just before his death, is looking back over his life and 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 thinking about his, his faith, and this is what he says. Wherever I have seen the print of his shoe in the earth, there I have coveted to set my foot to. Tracing the pattern of Jesus's life. Well, how did Jesus walk? What did his love look like? Well, there are three key passages in the New Testament that we've explored in the past at different times in Covenant's life that I believe define what love looks like in practical and specific terms that are based on the pattern of Jesus's life. They are, first, Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Notice the the phrase, just as, and how that's repeated in each of these, that, that spells out the connection between how Jesus loved and how we are called to love. Romans 15, 7, the first one, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted us in order to bring praise to God. The second one, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And the final one, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Accepting, forgiving, and loving sacrificially, just as Jesus did. That's what it means to walk as Jesus walked and to love as Jesus loved. So this morning and over the next two Sundays, we're going to be looking at these three in turn. So let me tell you what I did to get ready for this series. And I really want to encourage you to consider doing the same thing. I just grabbed a legal pad and wrote across the top of three pages these three words, welcome or accept and forgive and love sacrificially. And then I flipped through the gospels. I just took a few hours and went through the gospels and wrote down every example that I could think of that seemed to fit 
in each of those three categories. And it is stunning what you discover about Jesus. I mean, I feel like I've come to see Jesus in a whole new way as a result of, of doing that and have come to a much deeper and more challenging understanding of what it means for me to live a life of love. So don't wait for us to do the work for you. I would encourage you to, to open your Bible and make your own discoveries as the Spirit leads you. All right, this morning we begin with Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. The word that Paul uses here is one that carries a really vivid impression of movement towards. Accept means to, to take in, to take to oneself, to take hold of, to receive, to receive into friendship, to receive into one's home, to welcome into hospitality. See how my arms keep doing this? That's the essence. It's the movement that is captured in this word. And then it has an intensifier at the beginning. So it means to really do this to keep reaching your arms around and drawing in, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. What comes to my mind is the way that Dick Towner, my adoptive dad, greets people. And some of you know him and you know that this is what happens. When you see Dick, and this is a pre-COVID description of this, we can't quite do this now, but, but this is a picture of this idea of reaching out and drawing in. The moment that Dick sees you, his face lights up with a smile. He leans towards you. He starts a step towards you. He reaches out his hand to you, takes your hand in a firm grip, draws you in, clasps his hand around your neck, and pulls you into an embrace. All of that motion inward is what Paul conveys in this passage describing how it is that we were accepted by Jesus. There are different translations translate this. They try to find the right English word to translate this. And the three most common words that are used are accept, receive, and welcome. In the ancient world, this word came to mean taking those who are outside and drawing them in, taking those who are far and drawing them near, taking those who are strangers and giving them a place in your heart, and taking those who are excluded and giving them an invitation. So how did Jesus do that? How did Jesus accept and welcome and receive others? What do we see when we flip through the Gospels? What can we learn about what that looks like? Well, here's what I saw as I walked through the Gospels. First of all, Jesus had an inclusive heart toward all. Everywhere he went, he was seeking, he was inviting, he was welcoming, he was including. I came to seek, Jesus says, in Mark chapter 10. And think about some of the words that are repeated all through the Gospels, and you are familiar with these. He called to the brothers. He called to the 12. He called to the, him the ones he wanted. Come, he says, I'll make you fishers of men. Come and see, he says, to those who want to, to know what it would mean to follow him. Follow me, he says to the crowd. Follow me, he says to Matthew. Follow me, he says to Philip. His love for others was intentional, broad, inclusive, indiscriminate, wherever he went. He took the initiative to reach out, to invite, to include, to welcome. To what extent does your heart reflect that heart of Jesus? Secondly, Jesus had a receptive heart for the needy. And this is where it starts to get even more challenging for us as we think about patterning our lives after Jesus. There were two dimensions to this, and one of them we just uh, heard a song about. There's the passive dimension of 
a receptive heart, of receiving the needy who sought him out and came to him. And again and again, there's this common description through the gospel of, of people seeking Jesus out and him having compassion on them and then meeting their needs by providing them with food or providing them with healing. He had offered the same kind of welcome to Nicodemus who sought him out in the middle of the night to find out who he was and what it would mean to follow him. But then there's also this active dimension of Jesus going and seeking out those who are in need and inviting them to himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, he says in Matthew 11. Come away with me and get some rest, he says, in the middle of an incredibly wearying time in Mark chapter 6. Jesus consistently puts the needs of others ahead of his own needs. He wasn't put off by need. He wasn't daunted by it or overwhelmed by it. To what extent does that reflect your own heart in this needy world? It keeps getting more challenging as we go along. Third, Jesus had a welcoming heart for the outsider. Welcoming those who were socially far away, those who were not normally accorded a warm welcome, the socially minimized and the marginalized. One of the things that you learn as you study about the New Testament is that the ancient Near Eastern culture was incredibly stratified. Uh, It was really broken out into stark separation of classes. At the very top were the the Romans and the public officials, and then the religious leaders, then merchants, landowners, men. You keep going all the way down, you get to the bottom. Foreigners, the sick, the possessed, the women, children, slaves, criminals. But what you see when you flip through the Gospels is that Jesus indiscriminately welcomed everyone, including those who had no place of welcome in the broader culture. Some examples. Think about how he welcomed the sick and the troubled. He touched the leper and healed him. He welcomed the blind man. He welcomed the demon-possessed man and sat with him. Think about the, the couple of different times where Jesus went out of his way to welcome children and to bless them. The times when he he gave women a place of welcome, welcoming the woman who anointed his feet, welcoming the woman at the well. His welcome of foreigners and people of mixed race was indiscriminate. In Mark chapter 7, welcoming a Greek woman. In, Mark, in Matthew chapter 8, welcoming a Roman soldier, part of the hated Roman occupying army. In John chapter 4, welcoming the Samaritan woman, which is this kind of understood by the Jewish people to be this mixed race composite of compromise between the Persians and the Jews. Uh, we see that in John chapter 4. And even welcoming a criminal, the lowest of the low, as he was hanging on the cross and dying. Jesus had an inclusive heart, a receptive heart, a welcoming heart. And it keeps getting even more challenging. Jesus had an accepting heart for the unacceptable. Accepting those who were morally far away, those who were considered ungodly and immoral. You remember the phrase that was used often by the Pharisees to, to, to point the finger at Jesus of him hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors were Jewish people. We just hear the phrase, but just stop and think about this. They were Jewish people who failed, who, who, um, who cooperated with the, the occupying Roman army and who gouged their fellow Jews by forcing them to pay exorbitant taxes uh, 
a great profit to themselves. They were hated, and Jesus hung out with them. And sinners, men and women who failed to live by biblical law, who, who violated the Ten Commandments and the traditions of the religious leaders, we're told in Luke chapter 7 that he welcomed a woman who led a sinful life. That may mean someone, a woman who is a prostitute. We're told in John chapter 4 of the incredible way that he honored and dignified the immoral Samaritan woman at the well. And perhaps the standout moment, John chapter 8, verse 10, the woman caught in adultery and dragged before him, he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. I think it is crucial that we understand this. Jesus is not condoning sin when he accepts and welcomes people. And we have to hear this. We don't condone sin when you and I welcome, accept, receive others, even others that we would consider to be immoral. I read a book that transformed not only my pastoring, but my evangelism, Grace for Shame by John Forrester. The thing that he talks about is the gospel is as much about communicating acceptance in the face of shame as it is communicating forgiveness in the face of sin. The thing we most need in response to our guilt, our sense that what we have done is wrong and unacceptable, the thing we most need is forgiveness. The thing we need most in response to our shame, the sense that who we are is wrong and unacceptable, is acceptance. Jesus offers both forgiveness and acceptance. The evangelical church has done a great job of offering forgiveness, but a poor job of communicating acceptance. The message that gets communicated is all can be forgiven, but only the good, the moral and pure ones like us can be accepted. I'm convinced that this is the thing that contributes more than anything else to our being known not for our love, but being known for our being narrow-minded and judgmental. Deep within each one of us as fallen human beings, including redeemed fallen human beings, are three powerful bents that shape every one of our interactions with people that we have to work hard by the grace of God to overcome. First, the first impulse is to put everybody into groups. The second is to put ourselves into a group with other people who are like us. And then third, our impulse is to accept those who are in our group and to reject those who are not in our group. You could call this the Pharisee fallacy. You may be aware that the name that the Pharisees gave to themselves means the separate ones, the holy ones. And the name that they gave to everybody else is the sinners. Do you see the way that we can fall into that same pattern? The Pharisee fallacy is to divide the world into the holy ones, the group that we are part of, and the sinners, all of the rest of the world that we're not part of, that we reject. We can fall into this trap where we feel forced to reject those 
with whom we disagree. But Jesus shows us an altogether different way of relating. He sees whether or not he accepts us and whether or not we are moral as two separate questions. Either I believe that their beliefs and actions are right or I believe that they are wrong. And separately from that question, either I choose to accept them or I choose to reject them. If we want to pattern our life after Jesus, we are called to welcome all, not only those whose lives and beliefs beliefs we agree with. One of the deep divides in the ancient world was over politics. Should we cooperate with the Romans or should we fight against them? Even using violence as a possibility. Even among his own disciples, we see evidence of three different kind of political alliances that were present among the disciples. From those who wanted to cooperate and go along to the zealots who were comfortable using violence to try to drive the Romans out of the country. So this is a message, this part of this, of particular relevance for us now during this election week. You may have seen the Wall Street Journal article that came out a week and a half ago called How Neighbors Split on Politics Stay Close. It's about two families, the Gates family and the Mitchell family, who are next door neighbors in Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Yeah, Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania. One family, lifelong Republicans, have a Trump-Pence sign in their yard. The other, equally lifelong Democrats, have a Biden-Harris sign in their yard. But also, in both yards, there is a sign that points to the other yard that says, we love them. In the past three months, these two families have started having meals together every Monday night. And the article says they don't argue, they don't label each other, they listen to each other's perspectives, they look for common ground, and they recognize that reasonable and good people can reach different conclusions. Chris Mitchell said, I think it boils down to us respecting each other. And Bart Gates agreed. He said, we don't see them as Democrats. They're the Mitchells, the good people who live next door. A line that Sybil Towner used to use often when I was on summer staff as part of her team. Edwin Markham wrote this. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. That means to scorn or to disagree with or to disregard. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This is so important and so radical. Hear this. This is the crux of this message. The key question for us to determine how we will relate to others is not, do I agree with your beliefs or your actions? Instead, the key question that we should ask is, how did Jesus accept me? And that should be the pattern for how we accept others. So how did Jesus accept you? How does he continue to accept you now as a person who continues to have broken and wrong beliefs, as a person who continues to have a broken life and and, and a sinful life? To Jesus, we are all the woman caught in adultery. All of us are in the category of those who are sinful, who fall short of Jesus' standard and yet are accepted by him. Neither do I condemn you. Go 
and sin no more. We have a lesbian couple that just moved into our neighborhood. They came to our neighborhood gathering three weeks ago where we met them for the first time. So how do you greet them? With cool distance on the basis of their lifestyle or with a warm welcome on the basis of Christ's love for us? What would God have us do in those situations? Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. How did Jesus welcome others? Well, there's one more thing that I want you to see. He demonstrated an inclusive heart toward all, a receptive heart for the needy, a welcoming heart for the outsider, an accepting heart for the unacceptable, the, the morally compromised, and he also issued a strong challenge to those who made God out to be an unwelcoming God or made Jesus out to be an unwelcoming Savior. He directly confronted with energy those who put a barrier between God and others. One group of people he did this to was kind of an obvious group, and that was the religious leaders who were so caught up in their religiosity that they put barriers in front of people. The two best examples are the buyers and the sellers in the temple. Jesus flips the table over and says, what are you doing? This is supposed to be a place of prayer, and you are putting barriers in front of people so that they don't have access to God. And he says, woe to the Pharisees and scribes who shut the door of the kingdom in men's faces. People who close the door to God instead of opening it because of their judgment on them. So one group of people is obvious, the kind of the overly zealous religious leaders who stood between God in the way of God and, and people. But this is the challenging group. And I think this is where we really have to look hard at ourselves. His own disciples did the same thing. I was appalled to see how persistent this pattern was. And it really got me thinking about myself. Where the disciples were so eager to fence off unacceptable people from Jesus. To keep them away from him. Think about the Samaritan woman. He ignored the disciples who were muttering about Jesus talking with a, not only with a woman, but with an immoral woman and with a Samaritan immoral woman. He corrected the disciples who wanted to send the hungry crowds away. He called out the disciples who sought to prevent children from coming to him. And he ignored the disciples who wanted to send the Greek woman away. In ancient hospitality practice, the understood code is the guest must honor the host. One way he does that is to refrain from refusing anything that the host offers. But another crucial way that the hospitality code is upheld is for us as guests to refrain from usurping the role of the host and deciding for ourselves who is welcome in the house and who is not. Sharon and Corey and I were talking about this over the weekend, and Corey said something that I just thought was incredibly profound. 
She said, you don't need to be an overzealous gatekeeper in a house in which you yourself are a guest. How might we have become overzealous gatekeepers, trying to keep people away from Jesus that we think might not belong, that might not be deserving of him? Accept one another, welcome one another, receive one another. Draw one another in just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. How did Jesus receive me as an undeserving outsider who had no claim on his love other than my need? How does he continue to receive me as an undeserving outsider who has, or as an undeserving insider now who has no claim on his love other than my continued need? Remember, the key question in determining how I will relate to others is not, do I agree with your beliefs or do I find your actions to be acceptable? It is, how did Jesus accept me? And that acceptance has a transformative power. Our acceptance is not to be the reward for the change that we desire to see for the other, in the other person. Our acceptance is meant to create a climate, an atmosphere in which change becomes possible. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Some of you are fans of Marilyn Robinson's incredible Gilead series. Well, she just came out with a stunning finale to that series called Jack, which tells the story of, of how the life of a struggling and down and out white man is transformed by the unconditional acceptance of a kind black school teacher. The thought of her acceptance of him, her honoring of him as a person worth respecting just because he was created in the image of God, just because he bears his soul, and for not, for, for, not for any reason that he is able to earn or deserve, that has a transformative power that begins to give a steadiness to his life, to fill him with hope and with focus and with purpose. Reflecting on Della's love for him, Jack says this, the thought of a benign presence takes the curse off of loneliness. For some reason that is as natural as loneliness, a necessary mediation that made the human situation less of an embarrassment. The inward privilege of belief that a kindly intent had not forsaken him and would not. It could not be altogether different if the presence were Jesus. And in fact, we are now the presence of Jesus in this world. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. God, make that so of us.